Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond. Plus, sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I did not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., and Jordan Coburn will be joining us remotely for her hot note a little later in the show. Uh, We have a lot of relevant news this week as we are self-isolating again, Um, and we do have an update uh, today on the major Trump tax cases and Mueller obstruction of justice cases and Mueller grand jury materials cases, those five major cases working their way through the courts. I have an update for that. Plus, we are joined later by the author of Home Tweet Home and American Tweetheart, T-Pain USA. Mr. T-Pain was going to be with us to discuss the implication of Trump supporters after Trump is gone. He will be gone, whether it's this November or some other day. Uh, he, he will eventually be gone, but uh, he leaves behind roughly 30 percent of, uh, of uh, voters that support him. And, and we have to talk about that uh, and how we uh, cope with that, because uh, a lot of people happen to believe that Trump is a symptom and not the cause of, of basically the rot from inside of this country. Uh, we do have a lot of news today. We've got some stuff about Russian oil companies, Venezuela. Like I said, we got the court case updates. And I'm going to cover it all for you. And Jordan will be here later with her hot note. But first, we have uh, corrections. It's a mistake. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Okay, so for corrections this week from Scott. Uh, he says not so much of a correction, but I have been at home in Las Vegas, Nevada for two weeks under lockdown. Nothing I have listened to has reminded people who are still sitting around doing nothing to fill out the census online or by mail. Start reminding people to do so, please. Also, Nevada is not getting covered enough in the news. Las Vegas exists in name only right now. Almost no one is working, and at least a million people in the Valley have lost their jobs. Uh, thank you for that, Scott. Yes, we do need to get on the census. Uh, you should have received a postcard in the mail. You can do it online, too. Uh, and... Uh, yes, Vegas. I mean, we, we had a $3.3 million or 3.3 million jobless claims this week. And I would imagine like a third of that came from from Vegas. So we have to be, uh, you know, 
we really have to recognize um, these communities that are hard hit by this. It's it's everywhere. It's it's not just national and by county by county. It's global. But yeah, Vegas took a pretty hard hit um, this week. And here's hoping that a lot of those jobs, particularly in in the service industry, will continue to get paid. And uh, hopefully the unemployment expansion in this latest rescue package signed by Trump this weekend will help with that. Uh, It's only four months of extended benefits, but that's, you know, we'll see what happens at the end of four months. There may be another stimulus bill. Don't know, though. There's not a lot of appetite for it among Republicans. From Ben Taylor, uh, FYI, splitting ventilators is actually a bad idea in the current pandemic, despite what you hear in the media. I'm a doctor uh, ventilating these patients in the UK. COVID-19 causes a type of lung damage, which is very sensitive to the way you vent someone. If you vent too much, you damage the lungs and kill the patient. Too little, and your patient dies from not being able to breathe, obviously. You can't control this with split vents. Better to save a life rather than kill two people. It might work for a neuromuscular disease, for example, example polio, but not for COVID. I recommend getting the polio vaccine and staying the F home until there is a corona vaccine. He says, my job really sucks right now, and your show helps keep me sane. Well, thank you for doing everything that you're doing. I'm glad that we could help even a tiny bit compared to what you're doing out on the front lines, and I will stay home for you. From Claudia Swan. Ladies, you are the bomb. I am so in awe of your ability to keep your cool in the face of everything going on right now. You're a beacon, and I'm grateful. Not so much a correction as a tip. In her A block the other day, Jordan mentioned a website that records COVID-19 numbers, but I can't recall which one. Everything I've read suggests the best, most reliable one-stop site for COVID-19 info is the latest numbers uh, on the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, which you can find at coronavirus.jhu.edu slash map. So that is definitely where uh, where I like to get my numbers from, too. Thank you for that, Claudia. She also says there's an amazing interactive map and much more. Please check it out. P.S. Your live stream Skype was terrific. That was a lot of fun. Thank you for being there. Uh, we did a, a co- uh, Friday at 4 p.m. for patrons of both Muller She Wrote and the Daily Beans podcast. We did a uh, almost lasted two hours until Maddo came on. We, we, we shut it down when Maddo came on, but it was a, a live streaming cocktail Q&A quarantine bonanza. I don't know. We'll have to come up with a better name. That's pretty long. From Jennifer Lemon. Oh, and we're going to do it again this week, too. So patrons, we'll keep an eye out for the email for the link to that. Uh, from Jennifer Lemon. You are an invaluable light in the darkness. Thank you. Uh, not a correction, but more information on sex differences and COVID-19 mortality. I'm a scientist, and we often see stark differences in incidence and severity of diseases in animal models and humans. Female sex hormones are protective in that injured cells don't kill themselves. Um, apoptosis. Uh, and they don't do that as easily in females. Uh, this contributes significantly to improved survival in premenopausal women to things like heart attack, stroke, traumatic injury, etc. compared to men. I was able to recently increase my Patreon contribution because of your pure awesomeness. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad that you're able to do that. I really appreciate it. Helps keep us afloat. From Liz Keys, uh, I got a lot of friends who say, I can't stand listening to the news right now, and I've been recommending you folks to them because everyone needs news with swearing and laughter these days. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, a correction on a correction. I agree that if there's no election, terms would expire, and there would be no president, no VP, and no speaker, and all that would be left would be the two-thirds of the sitting senators, and the PPT, um, President Pro Tem, would become the president. You said it would likely be Leahy, but this is not necessarily true. Um, the PPT is elected by the Senate, and while it is by convention the most senior member of the majority, there's nothing to say it wouldn't be Schumer or Warren. Okay, cool. So 
there's no rule, hard and fast rule there. Uh, yeah, and I think we talked about that with uh, Andrew Torres. Like, it's just generally the oldest, whitest guy in the room. So that might not be the case. From Andrew Grimm, love you guys, especially the potty humor. Uh, not really a correction, just one. potty humor. I'm assuming all the things we laugh about, about Jordan's uh, bidets of our lives. Uh, literal potty humor. Not really a correction. Just wanted to let you all know that many community, uh, many a community bank workers are also being called essential and having to work during the lockdown so that businesses can still get their cash. Can we get a shout out for all essential workers today? Thank you. Don't know how I'd maintain the same remnants of my sanity without this show. Uh, you are very welcome. I don't know how I would maintain my sanity, the remnants of what's left without you listening. So I appreciate that. And yes, shout out to all essential workers. Um, community bank workers, uh, food service workers, uh, just everybody who is at work right now, cranking out food, working at grocery stores, the Amazon warehouse folks, just making sure that everybody gets what they need. And and so shout out to all the essential workers. Um, and those are corrections. If you have any, please visit com. Click contact, select corrections from the drop down and build us a compliment sandwich. As we like to say, we'll get it right eventually. And now it's time for the news. We have a lot of it. So let's jump in with just the facts. All right. From the Washington Post today, according to former U.S. officials, the acting director of the National Counterterrorism Center was removed Wednesday in what insiders fear is a purge by the Trump administration of career professionals uh, at an organization set up after 9-11 to protect the nation from further attacks. And that's according to two former U.S. officials. Uh, as you know, we've been seeing this uh, sort of movement within the Trump White House to get rid of, of non-loyalists across agencies. And this seems to be part of that. His name is Russell E. Travers, a highly regarded intelligence professional with more than 40 years of government service. Total colleagues, um, or excuse me, he told colleagues he was fired by acting director of national intelligence, Rick Grinnell, the guy who has zero uh, minutes of experience working in intelligence uh, and the new recently appointed or installed, I should say, director of the of national intelligence. Um, and this is according to those former officials who, like others, interviews spoke on the condition of anonymity, uh, obviously. Um, why do you think I go by AG? So Travers, who took up the acting position last August, had been resistant to pressure to make personal personnel cuts at the center, which has been undergoing a review of its mission and effectiveness this is just typical dismantling of, of government agencies. But it's not just Travers. Also removed uh, was Travers acting acting deputy Peter W. Hall. Both were acting. Uh, and that person, Peter Hall, is now returning to the National Security Agency. And meanwhile, a spokesperson for Rick Grinnell has denied Travers was fired. Uh, Travers, quote, was offered the opportunity to move to a new role and chose to retire. Yeah, I've heard that before. Um, the, the, you know, the move the job and take it or leave it situation. I have personal experience with that. The Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Strategic Communications, Amanda Scotch, said in a statement to the Washington Post that, you know, Travers was, you know, he, we wanted to give him a new job, but he decided to leave. Quote, Russ told acting director Grinnell he wanted to retire and he didn't want another assignment. Uh, one of the former officials said that Travers walked into a meeting on Wednesday uh, expecting to brief Rick Grinnell uh, on his counterterrorism when he was told he was out and uh, he had no intention or desire to retire, according to these officials. So these are conflicting reports. And in that meeting, Grinnell told Travers uh, he would like to know how long it would take him to leave. 
and so Travers replied he would need a few weeks to complete the administrative work. Uh, the Turkey, now, we're going to go on to Turkey now, because this is something that is a recent development in, in the Khashoggi um, story, because Turkey announced this week it was charging 20 Saudis in connection with the murder of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, but the prospects are dim uh, that anyone will be held accountable. Uh, now, according to the New York Times, this is all from coming out of the New York Times, there's a lot of other uh, outlets covering this story too, but none of the suspects, none of these 20 suspects are in Turkey, and the Turkish courts do not normally try defendants in absentia, meaning you know they can't, they have to be physically there. And calls for international legal action have gained pretty much no traction. Uh, human rights advocates doubt that the, Sau- the Saudis or the Saudi justice system will ever punish the suspects charged there. As we know, a while ago, they had some weird thing where they sentenced five people to death in connection with the murders, but didn't say who. And it was a very weird behind closed doors um, proceeding. Uh, in October 2018, when he went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to retrieve paperwork, uh, that he needed for marriage, Khashoggi was killed, and then he was dismembered by a team of Saudi agents, and his remains have still not been found. Uh, after weeks of denial, Saudi officials acknowledged that the kingdom's agents had killed Mr. Khashoggi, uh, but they've insisted that the killing was neither premeditated nor ordered by the Crown Prince. The Central Intelligence Agency, our CIA, has assessed that the Crown Prince had likely ordered the operation with with pretty high confidence. I think it was moderate level confidence. I can't remember the level of confidence, but there was confidence involved. And on Wednesday, Turkey announced the end of its investigation uh, into the murder of Khashoggi with that with those indictments of twenty uh, Saudis. Uh, Eighteen were charged with quote murder with monstrous intent to inflict grave torment. That's an interesting uh, charge. U.S. lawmakers have sought legislation to limit arms sales to Saudi Arabia in response, and in December they passed a provision requiring the DNI, who is now Rick Grinnell, the moron, to declassify what the United States knows about the involvement uh, of Mr. Khashoggi's murder. And, of course, the director failed to provide that information by the 30-day deadline in this month. Both Democratic and Republican leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner and Richard Burr, and we know he's in trouble right now for his stock scam, uh, both urged the acting director of national intelligence, Rick Grinnell, to reconsider the decision not to declassify the information. So even Burr is asking for Grinnell to hand this shit over. Of course, we haven't heard much about the phone call uh, that was, sta- you know, stashed away along with, uh, you know, the, the Zelensky call in that code word classified system. There have been a few calls uh, with Trump about uh, not we don't know if they're about Khashoggi, but they were definitely with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And uh, Mr. Ganell's office has said uh, it was not releasing the information so as not to reveal intelligence sources and methods. That's its um, that's its go to line for for not declassifying things we actually need to know about. And let's see, also this month, uh, Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat member of the Intel Committee, uh, said he would seek another way to release the information because he he says it's in the public interest. Um, I don't know if that's going to be a court filing, um, but we'll see. Uh, it's going to be tough, you know, with with uh, Bill Barr uh, ahead, heading up the Department of Justice. And also this week, I mentioned briefly in one of the Daily Beans episodes about Robert Levinson. Uh, his name came up in a coronavirus task force briefing where Donald Trump said uh, he didn't believe he had died. 
Uh, Levinson is a retired FBI agent that vanished in 2007, and his family is now claiming publicly that he has died in custody in Iran. Um, There was a statement posted by the family's Help Bob Levinson Facebook page uh, that said the information they received from U.S. officials had led them, both them and us, to conclude that Levinson was dead. Quote, we don't know when or how he died, only that it was prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Levinson disappeared under weird circumstances way back in 2007 uh, in the spring on Kish Island, a tourist spot off the coast of Iran. And this was during an unauthorized trip for the CIA to gather intelligence on Iran's nuclear program. And after that trip uh, to Kish Island, he was never seen publicly again. He was last viewed alive in a 2010 hostage video in which he wore a prison style orange jumpsuit and pleading for help. And in early 2011, the family received photos of him holding up a handwritten placard with messages uh, in stilted English, such as, why you cannot help me. Um, Family members continued to believe he was alive at that point. There's those proof of life photos, for example. And U.S. officials repeatedly sought to secure his release uh, or at least to learn what happened to him. The Obama administration brought up uh, Levinson consistently in, in their meetings with the Iranians negotiating the nuclear deal that President Trump you know, eventually tore up. Uh, Officials in the Trump administration, like I said, mentioned Levinson in every public statement, uh, urging Iran to release Americans imprisoned in the country. Uh, But the State Department and the Justice Department also offered a combined reward of $25 million for information on any information on Levinson. Uh, Although Trump said during that press conference, as we indicated, that uh, he didn't think Levinson was dead, FBI Director Christopher Wray said he recently met with the Levinson family to explain that, based on evidence they've been collecting for the past 13 years, all signs point to the likelihood that he has died in captivity. Uh, But Trump insists that that's not been confirmed yet. So a little bit of conflict there between Trump and um, uh, FBI Director Wray. So I just wanted to give you a little background on Levinson, who he was when he disappeared, the circumstances, and uh, kind of why he was brought up in that press conference. It was it seemed to be a little out of, you know, sort of out of the blue. A lot of people, I don't think, knew about Robert Levinson. And uh, before we get to some hot notes, I have an update for you on all of the Trump cases, the big five working their way through the court system. Uh, first, in the House Manhattan DA uh, Mazar, that well, there's a House and a Manhattan DA Mazar's case, those two cases, and the Deutsche Bank case um, from the House. Oral arguments were set for those three for March 31st, but they with the Supreme Court, but they have been postponed uh, due to the coronavirus outbreak. With some saying they may be heard in April uh, with a decision by July, but that is of course up in the air. We don't know where the coronavirus outbreak uh, or the situation. We don't know what it will look like in April. Um, many people are saying that the peak of this won't come until, uh, you know, the first week or second week of May. So it could be postponed again. But if it is heard in April, the decision would probably likely be in the summer. But if this gets pushed back, back past the summer, it's not going to be after till the election, not going to be till after the election that we get these, these cases heard. And in the McGann House subpoena case, this is where they, you know, they wanted uh, McGann to come and testify about obstruction of justice in the Mueller investigation. The district court in D.C. ruled in favor of the House, as we knew, but then the appeals court ruled to dismiss the case for jurisdictional reasons. Um, and then that appeals court ruling was then vacated uh, and an en banc rehearing was scheduled before the full panel of eight Democratic, democratically appointed judges and two Republican Republican <laughs> appointed judges, uh, none of which are Trump impo- appointees. Uh, and that 
is supposed to be set. That rehearing on Bonk is supposed to be set for April 28th. Uh, again, don't know what the world's going to look like in at the end of April. Um, and in the Mueller grand jury case, because we know April 28th, I think, was also the the New York and Pennsylvania um, primaries for the Democratic 2020 nomination. And I think they've been postponed, uh, at least New York has. And in the Mueller grand jury materials case, this is the one, you know, where like the Jaworski roadmap from Watergate, where under secrecy rules, they were supposed to hand over the Mueller grand jury materials to the House. And the circuit court ruled for the House on March 10th. That was, gosh, 20 days ago. And there has not been a stay issued, meaning the DOJ is supposed to turn those materials over. And the Department of Justice has not filed to have an uh, en banc rehearing. And they have not filed for a stay either, uh, either from um, the appellate court or the Supreme Court. But uh, with some new information here, they have until April 26th to file for an en banc rehearing. Uh, a decision on that petition should pro I think it'll be denied uh, by the D.C. Circuit Court, that full panel I was just telling you about, eight and two with uh, no Trump appointees. I think it's the same panel. It's the full panel. And uh, that would take place likely in May. Uh, a decision on that. And then the Department of Justice can file for a stay from the Supreme Court again and appeal on the merits to the Supreme Court after that. And of course, it's just delay, delay, delay. That's the only defense that, that Trump has in these cases. And of course, we'll keep you posted on these cases as more information comes out. So with all of that news, that weekly Mueller-related and Russia-related news out of the way, uh, let's bring Jordan in remotely she has her hot note for you. Let's do it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Hello, everybody. This is Jordan's Mueller She Wrote hot note from Mukitchen. Hope everybody's doing well, considering, as always, I miss you all. Uh, I'm going to jump right into it here because I got no one else to shoot shit with. So it's just me. All right. Here we go. The article, I'm going to be covering an article Obama actually tweeted out from The Atlantic called How the Pandemic Will End. Uh, it's it's lengthy, but it's it's really comprehensive, I think, and it does a good job of sort of summing up a lot of the things that maybe we've been hearing from various news sources as all this stuff has been going on, but it's just nice to actually see it all laid out in one article, and um, it's from a guy that also wrote an article not too long ago warning everybody of the possibility of a pandemic, and now here we are. So I think he's a really great writer and a, a really awesome uh, contributor to the Atlantic. So here we go. Okay, uh, so he, he starts off by putting everything sort of into context, right? He says on the Global Health Security Index, uh, there's it's a report card that grades every country on its pandemic preparedness. The United States actually has a score of 83.5, which is the world's highest, right? You would think that that makes sense, but that has been completely decimated as this has transpired, uh, because even though there were months of months and months of warnings to us as uh, this, as COVID-19 was spreading uh, everywhere, um, when we finally tested by the virus itself, right, we failed. So it doesn't seem like that ranking was well deserved whether that's because of the leadership coming directly from the top and I, I, don't, I don't know if I don't think it's completely fair to 100% blame Trump obviously he obviously sucks and is not doing a good job obviously but there's other factors that our country had that I think we we kind of we slept on a lot we thought that we were in a better spot than we actually are um 
And so the author goes on to explain that in order to contain a pathogen like this, you have to develop a test and you have to use it to identify the people that are infected. And then you have to isolate those people. And then you have to trace the people that those people have a contact with. And that's what was happening in South Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong. They did that to a uh, the nth degree. Um, but it's something that the U.S. didn't do, right? And we continued to fumble for quite a while uh, and still are, I think, at the top-down level. Um, I know there are states that are taking immense leadership positions right now and basically guiding the country to hopefully a better outcome, but the United States really has dropped the ball in so many ways. Uh, one of the ways, the CDC, for example, they developed and distributed a faulty test in February. Uh, we've had independent labs that have created alter- alternatives, but the FDA process of approving them has kind of been slow up until this point. Uh, you at the point where tens of thousands of people were getting infected, right? There were only like hundreds that were getting tested. And that was a really scary time period, especially because that's ideally, obviously, when you would want as many people tested to that. that that's when that's when testing is incredibly essential, right? I think it's essential all the time because identifying who is sick and who needs to quarantine and who might be eventually be safe to go back to work is always going to be important metrics, but especially when it first hit the country. We really needed to have a coordinated testing response, and we just didn't. And the fact that the U.S. didn't is insane. Uh, Alexandra Phelan of Georgetown University, she works on legal and policy issues that are related to infectious diseases. She said, I'm not aware of any situations that I or others have run where we considered a failure of testing. So professionals all around were not anticipating this. I know there were there were some there were a decent amount of folks that were sounding an alarm saying, hey, hey, the US is not ready for a pandemic. We're not ready. And if anything, those people were not not only were they not really listened to, they were shoved to the side. You know, our pandemic response team, for example, at the White House level uh, on the NSC, I think it was, was dissolved, right? So incredibly poor response to something that was considered to be an impending threat by many, just an eventuality. Our Our healthcare system largely operates off of the assumption that unaffected states can help the other states that might be going through an emergency. That's kind of the status quo in terms of, you know, what happens if someone runs out of supplies or if there's a there's an emergency happening in a in a regional area, you know, the the thinking was, oh, we'll just have people come in and help them. Well, what do you do when literally every single state is hit and that's now the state that we find ourselves in currently? Uh he then goes on to talk about the future of COVID nineteen and trigger warning. There are some disturbing projections coming up, but I promise it will end it with a positive, but for these next couple minutes, it's going to be a little bit of uh, doom and gloom here. Uh, they Okay, so the author presumed that if things go unchecked, by the end of June, there will be roughly 15 COVID-19 patients in need of a hospital bed for every available one bed. So that's 15 people that need a bed and only one bed that exists. That's assuming the mitigating fat or the, the things that we can do to make this better and tamper the effects down are not done. This is like worst case scenario projections. By the end of the summer, without adequate measures, it's estimated that 2.2 millions, uh, 2.2 million Americans will have been killed by coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. So 
those are the doom and gloom stats okay but here's what's moving on move for, for for sake of moving on into the future with some hope this is what's outlined as needing to happen to change those numbers and get those down first and foremost uh and most important is to rapidly produce ppe these are masks gloves other ppe equipment um that's redundant personal protective equipment uh these shortages they're happening because they're generally made to order and they depend on international supply chains that are just completely breaking right now obviously the demand is incredibly high and not to mention the fact that the demand is high but the places that they're made are also affected by COVID-19 so there's a lot of people that are stepping up in various ways trying to do whatever they can right now we've seen it everywhere we see people you know that are taking it on themselves to make masks in their home in fact I was talking to a patron who's super awesome I wanted to give her a plug because she's single-handedly made 600 masks already she's one of our patrons she's super awesome you can follow her on twitter at lil olive xoxo that's l-i-l-o-l-i-v-e-x-o-x-o but she's done so much work and that's just for one person to make 600 masks is incredible and there's so many people that are doing that everywhere and these are the kind of you know measures that people have to resort to right now because we just weren't prepared we weren't prepared for this to happen, and it's required, honestly, of people right now uh, that everybody steps up in, in the ways that they can, whether that be staying at home, whether you have the ability to make masks like Olive is. That's obviously, I mean, she she the way she explains it, she literally spends like her entire day making masks. She's like stopped doing what she normally does and now just does this. So that's an incredibly dedicated, super badass response to this. Not everybody can be as badass as Olive, so shout out to her but just staying home for example you know that's that's a in a sense it's a bare minimum but it's also huge the impact that it makes is essential right now so everyone has to come together because everything's so fucked uh in our system basically which is very sad but very uplifting to see everyone that's coming together and doing that uh another thing trump invoking the defense production act to launch so this is in a wartime effort basically uh american manufacturers are switched supposed to switch to making medical equipment and this is something that people in the public have been nagging trump to invoke over and over again and he didn't do it for a very long time uh he finally invoked it last wednesday but apparently he's failed to actually use it and this is reportedly due to lobbying from the u.s chamber of commerce and heads of major corporations so that's indefensible and hopefully that changes uh next we need more tests uh right we need a huge rollout of COVID 19 tests they've been really slow to arrive because of five separate shortages this article uh this article's author lays out one we have shortages of masks to protect people that are administering the tests um two we have a shortage of the nasal swabs that are used to collect the viral samples. Three, we got a shortage of the extraction kits for pulling the virus's genetic material out of the samples. Uh, and we also have a shortage of the chemical reagents that are a part of those kits. And finally, we have a shortage of trained people who can give the tests. Uh, so just listening to that list again, you know, it, this is a lot of supply chains breaking, essentially. Uh, good news, the FBI, or FBI, oh god, 
the FDA. Very different. Very different entities. The FDA is now... I miss Mueller times, dude. I'm going crazy. We haven't talked about fucking Mueller stuff in forever. Here we are. Uh, who knew there would ever be a day where I was dreaming of the FBI? What have I become? Uh, the FBA is now moving quickly to approve tests developed by private labs. Uh, at least one can deliver tests result test results in less than an hour. That's incredibly fast. This would potentially allow doctors to know... You know, while the patient, they can hopefully walk in, get tested, and then walk out knowing whether or not they have it. Uh, we're adding capacity on a daily basis, says Kelly Robles- Robluski of the Association of Public Health Laboratories. And obviously, once the tests become more available or as they become available, uh, they're they're going to, the first priority is to test hospital workers because these are the people on the front lines. These are also the people that are potentially spreading from person to person. So we have to get them the resources that they need. They are our first line of defense right now. Um, the third need is social distancing, right? And talking about these people on the front lines, this article lays people out. Everyone essentially, they say during COVID-19 falls into two camps. You're either in group one, which is you're actually a healthcare worker or, or you're a first responder or you're someone that has to be out in the community combating this. Or you're part of the second group, which is just basically us plain folk who are not doing those jobs right now. And uh, the job is for group two to stay home so that group one uh, has more time. So basically, this whole quarantine is to buy group one more time. And it's time that is imperative to the survival of of potentially millions of Americans. And it's really that plain and simple. I feel like I keep hearing people say, I don't see, I don't see the point of this. You know, Trump likes to say, at what cost, right? And I hear members of my family talking about this too. And, and it, I understand, I understand that someone could be sitting here and being like, my whole life is fucked. I don't have money. I have nothing to do. I have mental health struggles. I have physical health struggles. Everybody's lives are being impacted in some way. And some people, it's definitely more than others. And it, it seems like with a situation that doesn't have a definitive end in sight right now, that's really scary, right? That really, really scares people. And there's an option where you could just not quarantine as a society and you can essentially just let everyone loose and eventually... COVID-19 will resolve itself, but not without killing an incredible amount of people, a huge, huge amount of people that are going to die not only from COVID-19, but from other things. For example, all the people that go into the hospitals now that can't get the care that they need because COVID-19 patients are taking up space in the hospital that they need, right? So if it, it's it's frustrating trying. I don't know if you all have family members that are expressing that too but it's it's truly that plain and simple it buys them time stay home it buys them time and it saves lives and you really can't argue that it's pretty i think um indefensible uh it's the second time i've used that word to describe trump who would have thought it's indefensible him going out there and saying that we're going to reopen the country in a matter of weeks it's complete bullshit it's putting an idea in americans minds that they do not need to have right now. It's creating a disjunct in how the federal government is messaging things versus how people on state level, like state and local levels are messaging it. And even within his own federal, you know, group, it's like Fauci's on his team. Fauci is just sitting there literally with his head in his hands, which is not up to COVID-19 code, Fauci. And he's sitting there and there's 
a bunch of other officials there that just hate the shit that's coming out of Trump's mouth because, like I said, as I sit here looking at my postcard that says President Trump's Coronavirus Guidelines for America, right on the back, it's saying all this shit about staying home, and then he gets on TV and says shit like the country's gonna go back to normal, just totally negating the purpose of everything that we're working right now to try to do to mitigate this as much as we possibly can. <sighs> Stay home. Social distancing. Uh, so this leads us to the fourth need, and that is effective coordination and dissemination of information. Like I said, uh, the the White House press room is kind of a high drama space right now uh, with those sort of images of Fauci just looking entirely exasperated and over having to work under the biggest idiot that's ever been elected into that office. Um, but apparently, um, Fauci says that Trump's been listening to him. He says, he's got his own style, let's leave it at that, but any kind of recommendation that I have made thus far, the substance of it, he has listened to everything. And really, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to believe that there's any sort of seamless transition of information from one smart person to such a not smart person, but Fauci, if Fauci has, just please don't leave Fauci. That's, so many people are counting on you, and you're doing such a good job. Please don't leave. It's probably not in your control, though, unfortunately. If anything, you'll probably get kicked out if you wind up losing that spot, and that's complete bullshit, but it's essential that people get together on government, state, local, and federal levels to have coordinated messaging and have coordinated campaigns to direct the public to do what's going to mitigate this in the most effective way possible. Um, where I was looking at the article it, that it mentions a recent analysis from UPenn um, that estimated even if social distancing measures can reduce infection rates by 95%, 95%, that's a huge reduction. So even if we can achieve that 95% reduction, we will still have 960,000 Americans that will still need intensive care. There's only about 180,000 ventilators in the U.S. and only enough respiratory therapists and critical care staff to safely look after 100,000 ventilated patients. So to not follow through with social distancing as much as possible just looking at numbers like that it's it's again indefensible the only option right now for us as group two is to maintain the social distancing protocols for as long as it's advised by actual medical professionals and these officials and these you know academics who have dedicated their lives to studying pandemics it's essential that we listen to them abandoning it now would be catastrophic. Uh, the article then goes on to look at the sort of three endgame scenarios of all of this. First is that, similarly to SARS in 2003, every nation manages to simultaneously bring the virus to heal, uh, but author mentions that given how widespread this pandemic is, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, so probably can't expect that first scenario to play out. Second is that the virus does what past flu pandemics have done, uh, which is that, quote, it burns through the world and leaves behind enough immune survivors that it eventually struggles to find viable hosts. Uh, this is the herd immunity scenario, as you may have called it, or heard it referred to as. Um, it's This is kind of what 
Trump is sort of touting, sort of slow-key baiting people with, which is horrifying. COVID-19 is way more spreadable and fatal than the flu. That's documented by a lot of evidence right now, obviously. Uh, It's also brand new. It's also something that no immunity is built up whatsoever in communities. So, again, like I described before, to essentially just allow this to unleash itself on a society would be knowingly understanding it's going to entirely, entirely break our healthcare system. People are going to die unnecessarily of COVID-19 itself. They're also going to die unnecessarily of other things that they needed to get care for, but couldn't because of the overflow of the systems. This is a thing that the UK sort of seemed to consider for a second, but then they backtracked when the models revealed those dire consequences uh, and the fact that Trump is even remotely dropping little hints that he's even vaguely considering that is is absolutely not okay. Uh, The third scenario is that we sort of play, as the author describes, a protracted game of whack-a-mole with the virus, stamping out outbreaks here and there until a vaccine can be produced. This is the best option, but also the longest and most complicated, he says. Um, The steps for a vaccine, I know some people have been hearing, like last Monday, there was a possible vaccine created by Moderna and the National Institutes of Health, and it went into early clinical testing, and that's incredibly fast. Uh, Fauci said it's overwhelmingly the world record for, for that to have been developed so quickly. But now there's so much more in, in, in the process that has to happen for, for a vaccine to sort of come to fruition and be administered to the general public. And the author kind of lays that all out, so I'm going to do that because it was really enlightening for me because I didn't study science. I went in as an engineer in college and two weeks in was like, nope, don't want to use my brain that hard. And then I dropped out. So I'm saving this shit for the smart people and I'm going to directly read the quotes. Um, Okay, but it's also the fastest step among many subsequent slow ones. The initial trial will simply tell researchers if the vaccine seems safe and if it can actually mobilize the immune system. Researchers will then need to check that it actually prevents infection from SARS-CoV-2, cov I see, I don't know, I don't know how you're supposed to say that, COVID-19. Uh, they'll need to do animal tests and large-scale trials to ensure that the vaccine doesn't cause severe side effects. They'll need to work out what dose is required, how many shots people need, if the vaccine works in elderly people, and if it requires other chemicals to boost its effectiveness. So that's... I've, I already had a friend DM me that was like, oh, they're already they're already testing the vaccine and shit. And it's like, yeah, that's the most basic first, first, first part of that process, which is incredible. Like Fauci said, it's incredible that they were able to get to that spot so quickly. And the scientists that are in those labs and are working on this right now are also heroes. And it's incredible the work that they're doing. But it's going to be still 12 to 18 months at least before we could actually see a rollout to the general public. Uh, so that's definitely something to keep in mind when you start vaccine fantasizing. Um, I'd also, just on the topic of vaccines too, I think when this is all over, when we talk about behaviors that are going to like hopefully um, come with us into the waking life that is after this really shitty nightmare that we're all in right now, I think one of one of those things is going to be getting vaccinated for things like the seasonal flu. I admittedly 
have not gotten that every year. And after this, I will 1000% get that vaccine every single year for the rest of my life. And I hope that everybody is experiencing a similar feeling. Um, this is a total shift. It's a complete shift that we're all going through in our brain. Like nothing's going to be the same again after this public health wise. It's a crazy bookmark in our history. And I hope that people can find the good in it where it exists and we can take it into, you know, society once we start getting to see each other within six feet again and uh, we can keep making the world great. Take that, Trump. Make the world great again, you piece of shit. All right. That's my hot note, everybody. Thank you. I uh, really, really appreciate all of the interactions everyone has been engaging uh with us on on twitter and facebook and instagram and everything it's it's just so good to talk to you all our happy hour for patrons was so fun i think we're going to try to do that as often as we can because it's incredibly entertaining uh it's so fun we had like 400 people sign on just like chatting and asking questions and it just feels really good to hang out with you all even if it's via text characters and an avatar but that's that'll do for now so become a patron if you're not, because we do those uh, for our patrons. And I hope y'all are holding up okay. Be well. Three, Thanks, two. guys. All right. Thank you, Jordan, for that update. I miss you. Um, my, hot to- my hot note today is about Russian oil in Venezuela. And this will tie directly into sabotage, which, which we'll get to here in a minute. But this is um, very interesting. It flew under the radar this week. Russian state oil company Rosneft, which we all know, it suddenly sold off its assets in Venezuela. Uh, and this is uh, from the New York Times. Uh, the Russian state-controlled oil firm Rosneft said Saturday that it was ceasing all operations in Venezuela and selling off all its assets in the country, signaling a massive shift in, Kremlin st- in the Kremlin strategy that could actually rattle Venezuela's crumbling economy. This is not going to work well uh, for, uh, for the Venezuelans. And that's going to tie directly into what we go over in sabotage because uh, there were just recently some indictments of some uh, folks related to Maduro, not related familiarly, but like familiarly, I can't talk today, Uh, but, you know, uh, associates of Maduro have been have been charged. And so keep that in mind as we go through this. But Rosneft has emerged as the biggest economic ally of Venezuela's uh, Maduro. Uh, and, and Russia accounts for up to two-thirds of the country's oil trade and a significant share of crude production. And this is a lifeline provided by Rosneft, and it has allowed Maduro to maintain a flow of hard currency and supply to the country uh, with gasoline. The U.S. imposed sanctions this year on two Rosneft oil trading subsidiaries for helping Maduro, because we don't recognize him as the president of Venezuela, we're Juan Guaido. The uh, the sanctions, which have hurt the company's business elsewhere in the world, were cited by a Rosneft spokesman Saturday in describing the sale as one of the reasons why they were unloading their Venezuelan assets. But still, the sale of Rosneft assets is not necessarily a move away from Maduro by Russia. Uh, but, you know, Rosneft said it was selling Venezuelan assets to an unnamed company that it described as wholly owned by the Russian government. And in that respect, Moscow will be more entangled in Venezuela than before. Because of its ownership in Rosneft, it you know it sold off a bunch of it. It's just over fifty percent. So this might actually be a way to grab on and hold on to control of oil in Venezuela. Industry executives say the sale appeared intended to disconnect Rosneft from Venezuela without substantially changing Russian role, Russia's role. Um, 
Rosneft employees in Caracas have not been notified of any changes in their job status. Things are just going along like they always have been, which also suggests operations are continuing as normal. Uh, Some analysts, though, have cautioned that while the Kremlin is likely to continue holding major positions in Venezuela's oil industry, uh, the Kremlin's new holding company may not have the financial muscle, commercial network, or desire to maintain oil trade and investment at the level desired by Maduro. Um, A Caracas-based oil consultant named Antero Alvarado says, quote, they will probably not want to put the money down. Uh, They will regard they will guard the assets and wait to see what happens. Um, And he said that referring to the volatility in the global oil markets right now because of that OPEC price war that's going on. And uh, David Goldwyn, uh, our State Department's top energy diplomat um, from the first Obama administration way back, um, says that the move would further limit Venezuelan revenue from oil exports. So it just hurts the Venezuelan people. Rosneft has been trading Venezuelan oil to small refineries in China, and that's been in violation of the U.S. sanctions. Um, And while in theory another Russian company could do the same, it could not do so immediately in the absence of Rosneft's trading systems, which would choke off a source of revenue for Maduro's government. Uh, Mr. Goldwyn uh, called the sale a victory for U.S. sanctions. Uh, Coupled with a crash in global oil prices, the sanctions had made it worthless for Rosneft to trade in Venezuelan crude. So they consider this a win. Um, But a spokesman for Rosneft said in an interview with uh, Russia's Interfax news agency that the sale was necessary for his company to continue doing business internationally. It might just have been a way to skirt these these sanctions, skirt these U.S. sanctions, which is, uh, you know, the Russians, that's what they do. So, um, you know, Rosneft is controlled by the government, but partly owned by private investors. Its stock is listed in the London Stock Exchange. Uh, British Petroleum uh, has held roughly 20% stake in the company and has represent, uh, has representatives on the board. So BP is, is bought heavily into Rosneft. And their investments in Venezuela have become entangled with Russia's goal of regaining a geopolitical like stranglehold in South America and restoring influence that Moscow had lost in the region after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that's sort of what we're looking at here. Um, sanctions on two Rosneft subsidiaries that were shipping Venezuelan oil to China and India to slow purchases uh, has led to a near overflow of petroleum storage tanks in Venezuelan ports. And that put further pressure on Venezuelan production, uh, which has stabilized at about three quarters of a million barrels early this year, but it's falling as the coronavirus is reducing energy demand. So that's compounded by the coronavirus problem. And the Trump administration this month sanctioned TNK Trading International, which is the subsidiary of Rosneft after it's, you know, stepped up shipments of Venezuelan crude. So we will keep an eye on this story for you. I hope Maddo goes over it. She wrote a whole book called Blowout on on, uh, Russian oil and their stranglehold in in uh, around the globe. So I think it's very important that we you know, that we talk about this and, and we kind of keep it on our radar a little bit as, you know, as we, this, you know, COVID-19 takes over the news cycle. I think it's important that we, that we keep these, keep these in our sights because there's a lot going on there. Um, so that brings us to sabotage. <laughs> All right. So for 20 years, right wing extremists in Miami and Washington have been slandering the Venezuelan government, accusing it of drug trafficking, harboring terrorists um, without having any evidence. And they got their wish on Thursday. And this is the United States Department of Justice indicted um, 
Nicolas Maduro and 13 other current or former members of Venezuela's government and military. And in addition to the indictments, uh, Bill Barr offered a $15 million reward for information leading to the arrest or conviction of Maduro, as well as $10 million rewards for um, Dio, let's see, Diosdado Cabello. He's the president of Venezuela's National Constituent Assembly. Um, And Tarek uh, Isami, he's the vice president for the economy. Hugo Carvajal, former director of military intelligence. And Cliver Alcala, that's a retired general, military general. The indictment, though, has already backfired. Hours after the announcement, Alcala posted videos online that threatened to cause further splits in the opposition and could result in the arrest of Juan Guaido. Uh, that is the who the U.S. and other countries back as the true leader of Venezuela. And before going into those details, it's important to understand how politically biased the charges against Maduro uh, and the rest of, of these uh, folks I named, how, how politically biased they are. The indictments are another brick in the foundation for a pretext for either a direct... U.S. military operation or a proxy military operation using Colombian forces. Uh, There are obvious comparisons to 1989 when the U.S. put a $1 million bounty on Panamanian President Manuel Noriega, only to subsequently invade the country, if you remember that. And that caused an estimated 4,000 deaths. Uh, the reward the U.S. is offering for Maduro and these others, are that's troubling as well. They've already been compared to a bounty, the equivalent of a bounty on their heads. And Maduro has already survived at least one assassination attempt. Um, and the rewards could be interpreted, interpreted as a get-out-of-jail-free card should someone succeed in murdering any of these folks. On the other hand... Uh, the rewards the rewards verify what the Venezuelan government has been saying all along, that the U.S. is offering millions of dollars for people to turn on the country's leadership. Uh, another blunder with these indictments is that uh, the Trump administration is sending contradictory messages. Oh, total shocker. On one hand, they have tried for like the last three years trying to get high-level Venezuelan government officials to defect, promising space to operate politically, you know, after the transitional government comes into power. But on the other, talking out of the other side of the mouth, they indicted the most high-profile members of the military who have defected, and num- number one being Cliver Alcala, and they brought him up on charges of narco-terrorism. And so the brazenness of, of that indictment is attempting to cast Venezuela as a, as a narcotics, a narco-state. And the lack of foresight regarding possible, you know, blowback from this the attempted sabotage of dialogue and the mixed messaging talking out of both sides of their mouth all signals that the Trump administration is pretty much desperate to ensure its regime change policy shows results. They want results. And the victims uh, of this policy, of course, the Venezuelan people who would be much better off with a policy of de-escalation, dialogue and removal of the sanctions. So keeping that in mind, uh, let's play the Fantasy Indictment League. I'm going to be indicted. No, it is going to be okay. Indicted! Honey, dick. Indicted! Honey. I'm gonna be indicted! Hold it, they can't. It's gonna be okay. Just calm down. I can't calm down. I'm gonna be indicted! All right, so for Fantasy Indictment League, and this is sort of, I, I feel like the Fantasy Indictment League is a little like on hiatus a little bit. Um, I know I was putting I was putting bets out yesterday about how many pens Trump would touch and then hand out and and uh, how many hands he would shake during the signing of the rescue package, the stimulus bill that that he signed on Friday. Uh, and uh, I've got photos of him giving out two pens. I don't know how many more there were. They didn't televise it. They were supposed to televise it and no one ran it on TV. I don't know if that was a network decision or a Trump decision, but no Democrats were in the room. So that was interesting. But beyond that, I mean, there are, I think there could be indictments um, like, 
retaliatory indictments that come out of this Department of Justice. And so I'm going to go ahead and and put uh, as my five picks um, pretty much the same picks I had last week. It's going to be superseding Parnas and superseding uh, Fruman and superseding uh, Korea. Uh, that's the other associate that was uh, indicted along with Parnas and Fruman. And I would also like to do Giuliani, although I don't know that Barr is going to um, indict him. Uh, unless it's to protect the president, that could be a move. Uh, so I'll have him on there. And uh, I know they're not going to bring up additional charges on Flynn. At least I hope they do, but I'm not going to pick him. And I'm not going to pick him in hopes that they do, because that's what always happens. Uh, so instead, I'll do uh, the Enquirer, um, specifically Pecker. So that's, those are my... Uh, those are my uh, fantasy indictment league picks, although I don't see any legit uh, indictments coming out uh, of this Department of Justice. Although I will say I was surprised that Berman um, in in New York did indict the Turkish Hulk Bank uh, when Trump was pushing back and, and Barr was pushing back on that. So that's interesting. And so I think if, you know, if, if anything happens with Giuliani, it's going to be because there's just no way not to indict him. He's just not unindictable, uh, if that makes any sense. But we'll find out. Um, all right. No commercial breaks this show. You're welcome. So let's get right to the interview. I had the distinct pleasure of talking with one of the Twitter greats. Let's take a listen. Joining us for the interview today is your friend and mine on Twitter, author of Home Tweet Home and American Tweetheart, at T-Pain USA is where you can find him. It's T-Pain. Thank you for coming on Mueller, she wrote today, T-Pain. Well, thank you, Sister AG, and howdy, America. <laughs> I'm really, really glad to get to talk to you. Um, first of all, amazing books and uh, incredible presence on Twitter. I appreciate I follow you uh, a lot. Your tweets and retweets are, are uh, very helpful uh, during these, these days uh, that are upon us right now. So thank you. Well, T-Pain's proud to help anybody can. So I wanted to talk with you today about something I've noticed you tweet quite a bit about, um, and this is about Trump kind of being a symptom and not a problem, and, and what happens when Trump leaves office, whether the real danger lies with him or his followers. And going all the way back, I mean, we can go back to his comments about Mexicans when he came down the Golden Escalator. We can go back to the Central Park Five, um, all the way to Charlottesville, his refusal to disavow white supremacists, the wall chants and locker up chants, his rallies. Uh, now, with coronavirus, uh, his followers uh, are wanting to have coronavirus parties to deliberately infect their families uh, because of his downplaying of the seriousness of this virus. We have pastors telling people to come to church, Republican lawmakers telling folks to go out to bars and restaurants, and we even have the Mississippi governor telling mayors that they can't, they can't have shelter-in-place orders. And Florida beaches are not closing in Johns County until today. So I don't know what you think about this, but what happens once Trump is gone? Uh, his followers will still be here. What do we do? Well, T-Pain's daddy used to say that what we need to do is stop blowing on the fur and get to the hide. And, and what, what daddy was saying is that basically we need to steal, distill things down to their essence so we can truly understand them. And, and I think that's what we need to do with, uh, with, with MAGA folks. We, I think we need to look at the MAGA mind and see if we can understand it. It's the same before Trump, during Trump, and it's going to be the same thing after Trump. So let, let T-Pain maybe just go into this a little bit because he lives here in North Arkansas, and you can't sail a pie pan without hitting the MAGA down here. So T-Pain's gotten pretty good at understanding these folks. And most good folks like like you and me and 
and your regular folks on the street, they measure success in their life by achievement. And that's like uh, happy families and good careers, friends and, and strong community life and stuff like that. But, but the MAGA mind, you got to understand, it measures success by the failure of others. Mm. If you can imagine the kind of mind that has voted for Donald Trump and wants to do it again, those same folks have probably made a string of bad decisions in their life. And there's no hope of changing that. So if they can make just one soul more miserable than them, they consider their life a success. Now, that's kind of sad, but if if T-Pain gets too truthy for you, you'll let him know, won't you? Oh, of course. No, but I think you've hit the nail on the head. And and, I mean, if we understand that that's sort of the motivation behind a lot of this, then how do we mitigate it? How do we we combat that? I mean, I, I I would like to make racism and homophobia shameful again. Well, you know, T Pain once tweeted that if your MAGA neighbor uh, thought it would t- t- <laughs> if he thought it hurt your property values, he'd burn his house down. Uh, it's it's all about this this spiteful thing, and that that comes from a lot of motivations, but it uh, it's usually the fact that their lives didn't turn out the way they wanted. And they feel that that way, the only control they have is to tear down other folks. Now, I know that's a little cruel, but that seems to be the, the, the overriding uh, psychology behind it. Um, you also, you talk a little bit about the, 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 the Christians, the MAGA Christians and the evangelicals. And, you know, they, they, have a similar, they have a similar problem in life because they, not only do they have that spite thing going on, you know, they've got a conflicted religious doctrine they've got to contend with. You know, in, in, in the Bible, you know, God says he judges people and nations on how they take care of the widows and the orphans and the poor and the sick. And the evangelicals, they see liberals always looking out for poor folks and sick folks, so automatically, you know, that ain't for them. So they've got to create an alternative version of Christianity that's more congruent with their political agenda. So they kind of create a doctrine of cruelty. And... T-Pain has seen this before Trump got here. The cruelty is there, and it, it takes place. Uh, it takes. Uh, it manifests itself in racism, and in class struggles, and anti-science and anti-intellectualism, so that people actually brag about being stupid. And how do you de- how do you deal with that? Maybe, maybe the coronavirus is part of the answer. You talking about the old uh, George Carlin doctrine uh, of uh, we're the virus and and the Earth is is trying to mitigate us as the problem? <laughs> is that sort of uh, what you're getting at? T Pain was thinking more of the Charles Darwin doctrine, if you know <laughs> what T's talking about. Uh, these people seem to be given an opportunity, and they seem to be making all the wrong decisions to sustain themselves. It seems like that that this is the opportunity for maggots to essentially displace itself. People ah. don't want to sound cruel, but, but these people are given these opportunities and they're making all the wrong decisions. Yeah, I mean, I remember when it started innocently enough as as uh, MAGA's burning their own Nikes that they paid for already to own the libs or, you know, things like that, just blowing their microwaves up. Uh, and now, but now we burning have... their Harley Davidson. They literally <laughs> burned their Harley Davidson. <laughs> $30,000 bikes, right? To, to own us, but now we're in a situation where it's life and death. They're, they're, they're out basically trying to infect themselves with coronavirus uh, to own the libs, and uh, yeah, that's not going to end well. Well, you're right on the mark there, and you know, it's just like a bad horror movie. You know, 
the liberals are wanting the MAGAs not to go into the shed because there's a guy in there with a chainsaw and he wants to wear their skin for a mask. And that just makes the MAGAs want to do it even more. That'll show them liberals. It, it seems that no matter whatever position intelligence and, and information uh, forms, they want to do the opposite because that is just their nature. And at this point in time, it's going to be something that could end up being very self-destructive. Yeah, and I think, you know, this self-fulfilling uh, manifestation of cruelty as practiced by the Trump cult, I think it sounds like there's nothing we can really do about it. We just, you just, they'll, you just sort of have to let them either self-destruct. I mean, you can try to get get healthcare for everybody and, and, and get stimulus money out to everybody and, and get, you know, try to mitigate the damage as much as possible to try to help as many people as we can. But I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't know that anything can change this. If they're willing to risk their own lives, I don't know that anything can can be done to change it. And it's not just their lives, though. The problem is, you see, they walk among us. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever had a conversation with a MAGA, you know they're the worst mouth breathers you ever run across. And that's mouth breathers is the last thing you need in the middle of a, of a contagion. And mouth breathers, in this case, are spreading two things, uh, coronavirus and Trumpism. Mm-hmm. And we're still not sure which one's going to end up being deadlier. So what do we do? You know, <laughs> well... T-Pain is vexed at that, you know, that everybody, all these maggots keep saying that Trump was sent by God. And, you know, maybe they're right because he ran out of locusts. Uh, What we're going to have to do is what we're doing right now, be smart, stay indoors, and try to to mitigate the, the damage from the virus as much as we can. But what we do is, like, like, like Jesus said, we lead by example. People see your faith whether you're Christian or whether you're just a good citizen. Uh, you lead by example, and eventually people will either follow that or they'll pretty much uh, fade into the dustbin of history. Hmm. It's going to take time, and it's going to take love, and it's going to take truth. Truth is such a, a valuable, precious commodity right now that we just don't seem to have any of. You turn on the TV. And Trump's telling you everything's rosy and all the numbers. It's just like that scene in Animal Farm where all the animals are hungry, but the pigs are there giving their speeches and they're they're showing their charts and graphs how the food production is up more than ever and how things are great, but their bellies are still empty. It's it's so much like that. And we just need to have more Dr. Fauci's and less Trump press conferences. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you on that. And it, and, it, and I imagine this is, is very difficult for a lot of uh, liberals or Christians, true Christians, who who want to help people and don't want people to be hurt and and uh, live very, you know, empathetically that way. And I, I think that makes it uh, extra hard for, for people with kind hearts. Oh, T-Pain's heart broke this week when he, when he heard about those 51 Italian doctors that died. Mm-hmm. Out there, those people are on the front lines, and those are the real heroes. Those are the real angels. This T-Pain gets all mushy inside when he starts thinking about that. Yeah, I, I was uh, struck by uh, the hospitals in Spain having to make decisions about who gets ventilators. And uh, here in the United States, we're going to get to that point. Uh, we've already got hospitals discussing automatic DNR orders, uh, and it's it's 
it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I, I just think that we all have to be there for each other uh, uh, to help prop each other up because of our our nature, our giving nature, I think is uh, going to take a, it's going to be hard to cope with when, when it all comes down. Well, well, while folks are listening out there, T-Pain, he's been known to preach the gospel on occasion or two, and he's got a real bone to pick with these pastors that are out there, much like, once again, with the spiteful MAGA minds, challenging people to come to church, to face the coronavirus head on, to show that God is on their side and, and the virus will not touch them. Those people, they need to be locked down right now and put in a room with rubber walls and some crayons because they're going to get a bunch of people killed. They're supposed to be good shepherds, and they're just leading their flocks to slaughter. And, you know, the idea about Trump wanting the churches packed on Easter is like the scene out of a 70s movie uh, that starts where everybody ends up dying. Um, you know, if you think about it, it maybe Easter is the, is the right thing for that because that's a, the celebration of an innocent man being killed by the government. Yeah, and... and- it's just amazing to me that this has become political, that you're considered a leftist snowflake moron if you want to stay home and be safe. And, and uh, you know, you're a right-wing, proud American patriot if you want to go and, you know, take your kids and grandma to Disneyland. You know, it's just odd. It's just really odd that this became politicized, that a, that, that a virus became political. T-Pain never thought he'd live long enough to see that wanting to live would be a partisan issue. This week alone, there was, actually, just T-Pain was just looking through the news feed there a minute ago, and a couple of uh, pastors that have spoken out against the coronavirus, they died this week. One of them said that the, that the coronavirus will never touch him while he walks in the light. And his lights went out, and, um, and there's going to be a lot more of this. And these people are leading us in the wrong direction, and they're following Donald Trump. Yeah, his poll numbers are up. I don't understand how that's possible. Well, America, America is a, is a good people, and America has always been kind to leaders during crisis. If you look at at uh, back, of course, with George Bush, his his numbers went, his approval numbers on handling nine eleven were up in the eighties, mm. although his regular approvals were in the fifties, fifty fives. Obama's uh, was in the 50s, but during Sandy, they jumped up to 78. Well, Trump's went up to, what, 56? That ain't good news. If the difference between your regular approvals and your crisis approvals is that, and those, those numbers have been dropping, and I saw six points in the last uh, two days. That's a good point. If, if, yeah, that's a good point. If Bush got 86 after 9-11, um, that's, that's a really good point. In just a few days... Sister AG, we're going to have a 9-11 every day. Yeah, somebody pointed out uh, on Twitter that the globally we went from, it took us a month to get to 1,000 dead and then 48 hours to get to 2,000. And uh, if you just, you know, contemplate those numbers for a minute, it gets bad fast. T-Pain is not, he, T-Pain likes to stay optimistic, but he is not excited about the next two months. It's going to be rough. Yep, but we do what we can. Uh, care for each other, stay indoors. You were asking earlier before T Pain got off on one of his key tangents that uh, uh, what what do we do when Trump is out of office? First, we're all going to do a little dance, but then after that, we're going to have to deal with a with a 
what, 35% of the population that's still going to remain loyal to almost a, a deep state, you might say. And T-Pain thinks it's so essential that whoever is the next president, Joe Biden, uh, <laughs> and whoever he assigns to be the attorney general, Adam Schiff, that's who, is that he gives that person carte blanche to do whatever he needs to do to address all the crimes that Trump committed during office. And just cut that person loose and not be act like Bill Barr and Trump where they get together and talk all the time. Just let them go do it. And the more that, that those folks can be held to, uh, to accountability, that's going to have some effect on their followers. Mm. And the more that the truth comes out, the more that movement will weaken. And, of course, that movement is old, and those things will slowly attrit over time. So it's going to take seven to ten years to really flush this out of our system. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren had a good plan for that uh, Department of Justice task force to uh, reconcile all of the uh, the crimes of this administration. And, and we cannot do what we did um, after the Iraq war, after uh, we have to follow, you know, because you remember the whole, well, unity, we should move forward, not look back, etc. We can't do that again. It's It's things like that with Ford after Nixon and after the Iraq war. It's that kind of looking forward and letting the shit go, letting the crimes float away that uh, I think maybe helped get us to this point where we are right now. And I, we can't, we can't let that happen. Never again, sister, never again. Uh, 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 he's been kind of dark today. And if you don't mind, he'd like to share with you something a little more amusing. If you, that's along these lines, if you don't, if you don't mind, please, we always like to end our, our shows with uh, good news. So, so hit it, hit it, hit it. Well, if, you, if you've been watching Twitter and you've just been outside walking around, uh, folks are starting to do some fun things that they've been putting stuffed bears in their windows. So that way when families are out on their walks together, uh, they can walk by and they look and they search for stuffed bears in the windows and they call that a bear hunt. Oh. And that's uh, that's fun. Um, but uh, the MAGA folks down here, they kind of misunderstood the rules of the game and <laughs> So what they've been doing, they heard bear hunt, and what they do, they've been standing with their pants down uh, in front of their windows. And we've taken the column out of moonwalk. <laughs> I don't know if I want to see all that, man. <laughs> Where are you, North North Arkansas? Gizzard Ridge, ma'am. Gizzard? North Arkansas. Population 47. Gizzard Ridge. Of course it's called Gizzard Ridge. That's That's awesome. That's just what folks here call it. <laughs> bear hunt uh the moonwalk i love it uh yeah we're doing stuff like that too similarly we've got you know we put little hearts and bears in the windows and uh nobody takes their pants down here but uh somebody i think we have those little tiny libraries that people have in front of their houses people are putting food and non-perishables in there for other folks to grab it's uh it's nice to see the communities coming together so but uh, I'll, I'll 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 pass on the moonwalk <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, T-Pain, is, he's mighty disappointed in our leadership, but he is never disappointed in our people. America will get through this. Uh, America will stand tight, and it will take time, and there's going to be loss, but we will overcome. You can take that to the bank. bank. Yeah, and I hope we can kind of keep this, uh, even though we're all sheltering in place apart from one another, I th- there's this just great sense of togetherness and, and community support, and I hope we can keep that going well after the uh, this is over. T-Pain's going to say amen to that. 
Well, thanks, T-Pain, for, for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Everybody check him out on Twitter, at T-Pain USA. Uh, author of Home Tweet Home and American Tweet Heart, wherever you get your books. Uh, any any final thoughts, any last uh, words of wisdom T-Pain wants to pass on to, to our listeners today? We're all in this together. And T-Pain's praying for you and T-Pain's pulling for you. All right. Thanks, T-Pain. Let's I appreciate it. work. Yeah, we have a lot to do. We do have a lot to do. We have to roll up our sleeves and do it as long as we're washing our hands. I appreciate you coming on, Mueller, she wrote today. Thanks again. Thank you, Sister AG. God bless you. All right. Well, thank you so much um, to T-Pain USA, at T-Pain USA. You have to follow him on Twitter. He's just so funny uh, and so insightful. Thank you for joining me today. And thanks to everybody for listening. And I appreciate your patience as we we record these shows uh, sort of piecemeal, chapter by chapter, and we're all isolating in our homes. We try to do as many interviews as we can, and um, we'll continue to do that. I wanted to explain the reason that sometimes I speak to Jordan live, and sometimes I, when I don't speak to Amanda or if I don't speak to Jordan and just everyone sends in their um, their blocks separately, it's because at our network right now, uh, they are working furiously, uh, furiously to to basically edit everyone. Everyone on our network is doing remote now. So everyone has to be edited together and stitched together. And it's a much more complex editing endeavor than uh, than normal than just live sitting here with all three of us uh, in the room in the same room. So to alleviate some of the um, the hours uh, and and person power it takes to to edit those and stitch those interviews together, we're sort of trying to do this chapter by chapter. Uh, but we'll we'll have more live conversations as we're able. We we continually check in with our network to see how much you know time they have uh, on certain days to do certain things, and and we you know we have to match the supply with the demand. So that's sort of why we're doing it that way. So I appreciate your patience in that. If you have any uh, ideas or feedback for us, I'm happy to to listen to that. Just head to, you know, either Muller She Wrote and, and click contact. That's probably the best way to get in touch with us or hit us up on Twitter at Muller She Wrote or at Daily Beans Pod. And we will, uh, we love your feedback. And so thank you again so much for listening and um, for supporting us and for being there for us. It means the world to us. I can, I know I speak on behalf of both Amanda and Jordan and all of our staff. um, When I say thank you from the bottom of our hearts to, to be able to keep working uh, and getting paid and having health insurance uh, really, really helps uh, in this time. So again, much appreciation, much gratitude. Uh, I'm humbled by it uh, every week. So thank you very much, everyone. Please take care of yourselves and take care of each other. I've been AG and this is Muller She Wrote. Muller She Wrote is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn with engineering and editing by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, production and social media direction is by Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder and our knowledgeable listeners. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios and our website is MullerSheWrote.com. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. 
and the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.